0: We will finish up our series today in Habakkuk chapter 3. Our series has been entitled Faith Through Fog. Habakkuk, long before writing this book, knew God, knew about God, knew his character, knew the things that God desired of his people. And as as Habakkuk looked around at the, the people around him and how they were living, he recognized that that they were not living in a godly manner. So he cried out to God. This knowledge of God about his character, his holiness, his special love for the Hebrew people, this desire of God that his people would be holy. Habakkuk used this knowledge of God to stir up a passionate desire that God's people would live in a godly way, that they would live just and upright lives. God used Habakkuk's knowledge, knowledge of God, knowledge of sin, to stir up a desire that sin would be eradicated from among God's people. In other words, the more Habakkuk knew God, the more Habakkuk's desires mirrored that of God's desires. He Wanted what God wanted and he hated what God hated. And it shows through in the cries that we saw in chapter 1. Habakkuk simply wanted life to be right. So he cried out to the God of holiness, the God of comfort and peace. And we see how God responded throughout the book. Habakkuk just wanted life to be right. Isn't that what we want as well? If COVID taught us anything, hopefully we learned how, how thin the veil of normalcy is. That what we know as just normal life can be very suddenly and quickly turned on its head. COVID was a, a macro event. It's an event that happened worldwide, really. But these same kind of things happen in a, in a smaller scale all the time. Uh, people, individuals, every day have things happen to them that, that throw their life out of normal. And it hurts. There's a young man I know, um, he, well he was young at the time, uh, went to see a dentist, a very routine thing, and contracted an infection that affected his mind uh, and um, it, it affected his mental capacity. He was never the same, as far as I know. I've lost track of the family, but even years later, with his, with his parents advocating for him to get more medical treatment to try and figure out what has happened and w- what can be done to help him, uh, his life was changed. He, uh, I think he was about 18 at the time. Uh, you'd look at him and think he had this great future ahead of him, uh, a very smart, very intelligent young man, and all that was taken away. Because he went to see the dentist. A thing that we do. That's just a normal thing that we should do. And it changed his life. We want life to be right. So we work toward that and we pray for that. But the reality of this sin-broken world is that life is not going to be right. God revealed to the prophets the the big picture of what was going to happen next to the children of Israel. They're going to be invaded. They're going to be taken into captivity. They're going to be removed from the promised land. And this should not have been news to them because God had told them quite clearly in their law that as long as they obeyed the law of God in keeping the commands, in keeping the Sabbaths, individually in keeping the sabbaths for the land Uh, every seventh year we talked about that a couple weeks ago that they would be able to stay in the land that God had given them and their enemies wouldn't be able to take them but because they hadn't because they had not kept the law they had not kept the festivals they had not kept the sabbaths God was going to remove them from the land and he was actually keeping his promise in doing so Habakkuk wanted life to be right and normal, just like you and I want things to be right and normal. But God told him not only is life not going to be right for you, it's actually going to get considerably worse. How would you respond? Life hurts, and so you're crying out to God, Lord, fix this. And he says, not only am I not going to fix that, I'm going to cause it to be worse for you. How would you respond? Would you start bargaining with God? We actually saw that a little bit in Habakkuk's first response. Would you get angry? I probably would. I can admit that. Follow along with me, if you would, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16, and we will read... Habakkuk's final response. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of the trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places the choir master with stringed instruments let's pray father thank you for your word for the the harsh reality that we see our prophet going through and his response of peace and humility and even joy father teach us to respond in these ways as well in jesus name amen So Habakkuk has finally come to accept God's word of doom and he's actively living by faith as demonstrated in this closing testimony. So our big idea this morning is that the life of faith is often rough, but it's overshadowed by God's peace. The life of faith is often rough and you can sit here and, and think of ways that your life has been or is rough, or perhaps you recognize is going to be rough. God does not promise a life of ease to those who trust him. He doesn't. And those who tell you that if you just believe in the Lord that all your problems will go away, they're teaching you a lie. They're also probably after your money. In verse 16, we see that distress is the precursor to peace. We don't really understand the peace of God if we don't go through hard times. I hear, the prophet says. I hear what's going to happen, and my body reacts. My body trembles, my lips quiver rottenness enters my bones. We all understand what this poetry means. My legs tremble beneath me. We all understand because we've all had this happen in one way or another. It might be a, an incident that's really not that consequential. Maybe someone uh, has, is talking to you about some project you're supposed to be working on and uh, you completely forgot about it until the moment that person spoke to you like, oops, I was supposed to work on that a month ago, I'm sorry. And you've, you have that little pang of anxiety, that, uh, that little bit of fear, that tinge of fear changes your breathing, changes your voice and maybe your, your legs are shaking a little bit but you apologize, you, you move forward, take a deep breath and sometimes that alone calms you down. You just say, I'm sorry, I'll need to get back to you on that. But sometimes our distressing events are not so easily resolved. Perhaps it's a sudden loss of income. And it takes months to regain some semblance of financial stability. And in that time, your body carries the signs of your stress. Maybe you have no energy anymore. Maybe you just can't smile unless it's really fake. God has designed us to be incredibly adaptable. It doesn't mean we like to adapt, but he has designed us to be incredibly adaptable, to overcome whatever circumstances we're in. It's especially true of believers Our faith carries us through, but but that design is not only in believers. We see it in unbelievers as well. We call it the human spirit, that desire to overcome. But what we're going to see in today's passage is more profound than that of just human adaptation. What we're going to see in Habakkuk is that there's there's no amount of deep breathing that's going to help Habakkuk in this point, right? Because of the bad news he's received of the The trouble that's going to befall him and his people, there's no amount of exercise that's going to help him feel better as a result of this news. And don't get me wrong, Habakkuk will find peace and contentment. He does so by the end of the chapter. I just read it. But this peace and contentment comes from God alone which is why in verse 16, we don't find that peace and contentment yet. He's describing how he is reacting. Physically, he is weak and failing because of the trouble that is coming. Now, there's a a little glimpse of hope even in verse 16. He says, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He says, I know these people are going to come invade us. He knows this. God has told them, told him. And although God hasn't revealed to him how long, we know from Scripture that they're going to be taken into captivity for 70 years. This is not some small little event that is going to be over quickly. This is going to be the rest of the the life for most people that go into captivity. Not everyone, but for most. Yet, that little word of contrast, he would much rather not have this disaster befall them. He would much rather not have this dreadful series of events that God has promised is going to come. Yet in the face of that, he says, I will quietly wait. He's waiting, actually, for the very end. To happen? Did you see what he says here? He doesn't say, I'm waiting for the trouble that's coming to me. He says, I'm quietly waiting for the day of trouble to come upon those who are going to trouble us. And again, that is many decades yet into the future. In chapter 1, when Habakkuk learned of the coming invasion and that that invasion was guided by God's own providence. The prophet's response was that of resistance. He, he pushed back a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? That's, that's a very wordy way that Habakkuk is saying, no, 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 no. God, no, don't do that. It can't go down like this. That was his response in chapter one. But now in chapter three, we see a response of humility, a response of accepting God's will in his life. Believer, today, have you ever had a situation in your life where you knew something specific that God wanted you to do, or, or you had been doing something contrary to what God wanted from you. And, and it's not just a feeling you had in your heart. You read it in the pages of Scripture. You knew that there was a change to be made, and your first response was, oh, I can't do that. I can't make that change. I think Every person, every believer in Christ goes through this. If we're growing at all, that means we're in the word of God, that means we're learning, and we're learning about God, but we're learning about ourselves. The life of Paul fascinates me. He's the one who, uh, the, the first we learn about him in Scripture, he's against the church, actually actively persecuting the church. And then what does he become? He becomes like the greatest missionary ever, right? Going to, uh, to the Gentiles and starting churches here, there, and everywhere. Writing a good chunk of the New Testament. I mean, God really turned him around, not just on the road to Damascus, but as you see how his life was completely different afterwards. And at the end of his life, if you read the last letter he wrote, Second Timothy And he talks in 2 Timothy about how he's the chief of sinners. And it's not because he was looking back at his previous life before he was saved and, and magnifying those sins and saying, look, I'm the worst. I actually had people put to death. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. I think as he's been growing in Christ, learning more about God, learning more about what a godly life looks like, he looks at his own life and goes, I still don't measure up. Because the, the closer we are to Christ, the more we recognize those little sins that remain. That selfishness, that tendency to gossip, that uh, dissatisfaction with how God is leading in our lives. All those things that, that seem like little things because we back 5, 10, 15 years ago, we were dealing with big sins in our life But as God gives us victory over some of these sins, we still see this sin remaining in our life, and and we struggle, We, we become more sensitive to the sin that remains. And at some point, we look at that and go, it's just too much work. Don't we? Sometimes, aren't we tempted to do that? Habakkuk had a direct word from God. A direct word that hard times were coming and nobody wants to go through that. Habakkuk did not want to go through that. God uses distressing situations to change and grow us so that we can experience His peace. In fact, we never really fully understand the peace of God until we've gone through something hard. Distress is the precursor to peace. Verse 17, we see that circumstances are irrelevant to peace. We sang this verse earlier. Did you notice it? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. By the way, these are all bad things. Maybe we need to contextualize it since we don't grow figs. Though the corn crop should fail and the beans be ruined by blight, the dollar become worthless and our civility should become war. Though the flocks and herds should all be decimated, any one of those things would be bad news in our economy, wouldn't it? But the conjunction is not or in this verse. Habakkuk is talking about all of these things happening. Should everything that could go wrong in society go wrong How would we respond? Like I said, any one of these things would be a disaster. How would we respond should all of these things happen? We could revert to verse 16 and just stay there, having that physical response of fear, stress. The life of faith is not a life of ease. We should not be surprised when when times come that it does feel like absolutely everything that could go wrong is going wrong. Living by faith is rough, but the peace of God rules over that. And if you believe that, that's step number one. Because the more we know God, the more we can believe that. And the more we know God, the more we can have the response that we see Habakkuk have in verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Distress is the precursor to peace. We go through hard times and we have to in order to really know what God's peace is like. Circumstances are irrelevant to peace. No matter what might go wrong in our lives, we can still have peace. Why? Because salvation is the producer of peace. Actually, maybe I should say it this way. Our Savior is the producer of peace. Yet, despite everything that's going on, yet I will rejoice in God. He didn't say, I'll just be okay. He says, I'll rejoice in God. Is God your joy? I love my church. I love my church family. I love you guys. Most of you are sitting there, and right now I could not see that there's any joy in your life whatsoever. Okay, I see more smiles now. Despite everything that is going wrong in Habakkuk's life, he still has joy. Now, it might not show up in a smile. Smiles can be faked very easily. Is God your joy? I enjoy my children. Maybe not every moment. But I enjoy my children. Last night, Amanda and I went for a walk and our two youngest decided that they were going to go with us. The youngest on his tricycle. That's just asking for hard times, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed this, Harlan is not flat. So as Kyler joins us, I know there's going to be some help that we're going to have to give to get that tricycle back home. But it was so delightful to watch those two frolicking in front of us on the sidewalk, just enjoying life being out with mom and dad. If my joy was centered only in my little children, where is my joy when they grow up? Or if my joy is found in having children, where is my joy when they rebel or or just simply grow up and leave the house? What's happened? If my joy is found in my job or in my status in the community, if my joy is found in my bank account, all of those things can fail, right? If my joy is found in my activities, and then I'm no longer able to do them for whatever reason. If my joy is sourced in the wrong things, my joy will be fleeting. Now, I can take those same things. I can take the the joy of my little children and the joy of uh, my job and, and position and family. Joy, take your pick, fill in the blank. Take that joy and find joy in my God because of those things. Will that joy fail? No, because God never fails. My joy is found in him. I've given all sorts of positive things that we might find our joy in, but that's not really true to the passage, is it? To be true to the passage, we need to go a little bit further. Habakkuk didn't rejoice in God for a happy incident. He's rejoicing in Jehovah God, even though the circumstances are terrible. All of us in some way go through hard times. We all do. But there are some seasons for some individuals that are especially hard, extraordinarily difficult. It is in this crucible of trial that we grow the most. Can I confess something to you? There are times where I would just rather not grow then because I don't want the pain that comes with it. But that's that's my sinful self coming through. This doctrine of suffering is not a popular position, but it is a biblical one we will experience suffering. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. So then it becomes, how do we respond to it? How will we respond to it? The longer we live, the more suffering we will experience. My grandfather passed away this week, he was 103 which means he outlived everyone in his generation, uh, specifically, I'm thinking his family, uh, his brothers and sisters, his wife, his brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law. In fact, he outlived many from the next generation down. You could look at all the things that went poorly in his life and and the the compounded sorrows that, that he experienced and lived through, and you'd think he'd be the fussiest, grumpiest old guy you'd ever meet, and you wouldn't blame him for it. But he's the happiest guy I've ever known. I'll be preaching his funeral, Lord willing, Tuesday morning, and a phrase I expect to repeat often is, to know Tunis, my grandfather, was to know Jesus. Not because he was super godly, but because he was going to talk to Jesus about you whether you wanted to or not. Uh, We'd go visit him at the nursing home, which he only lived in for like two years. Um, And the staff there all knew about Jesus. They weren't all saved, but they all knew about Jesus because of my grandfather. Again, circumstances of his life he had every right to be miserable but his hope was in the Lord in fact um, I think he was a little bit surprised he was wrong about one thing he expected Jesus to come before he died that didn't happen that's okay you can be wrong about something that's fine Habakkuk responds rightly And does so as an example to us. He responds by worshiping the one who made him and saved him. And if our eyes will focus in on that truth, if we will intentionally put on a little bit of tunnel vision and look at our God, rather than our circumstances, we too can respond in joy. But how easy is it to be distracted by that pain that we know is coming? It says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He uses the name of God twice in this verse. And he mentions declaring joy twice. In this very short verse, this redundancy is perfectly and properly placed. We must find our joy in God, in him alone. He doesn't even say that I rejoice in my salvation. He says I rejoice in the God of my salvation. Stop wasting your time putting your joy in anything that does not direct your heart right back to your creator. We turn all too often to pleasures of this world to give us joy. And any bit of joy that they give us is fleeting at best. Think of your favorite meal. Maybe you're gonna have that in just a little bit. I don't know, maybe you're saying, Pastor Chad, hurry up, I wanna get to it. Think of your favorite meal. How long does it satisfy? For a little bit but then you eat a little too much and you regret that because then you're uncomfortable the rest of the afternoon, right? Even the best of things so quickly turn into something that's not great. Not so with God. You will never over-experience God. You will never have so much God in your life that you're like, oh, I'm so full, I can't have any more. Your joy in God will never disappoint. In fact, your joy in God will give you exactly the opposite. Look at verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. Where was he in verse 16? He was weak and falling apart. God is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. Now, that sounds weird. This is a poem. This is a psalm. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the the way that deer just seem to bound effortlessly. He makes me tread on my high places. What a change in this last verse. Verse. In verse 18, he declared that his joy was found in God, but in verse 19, his actions and attitudes demonstrated it. It's not just theory. The feet of deer are quick and graceful, but also powerful, able to leap and jump. You know, sometimes poetry, especially ancient poetry, especially ancient Hebrew poetry like we're looking at today, Sometimes that can be obscure and a little weird. Not this verse. Clearly, Habakkuk is speaking of being joyful in all that he does, in his action his demeanor. How can this be? How can he describe this type of joyful abandon when the weight of the exile is squarely on his mind? This, my friend, is precisely what the peace of God does for his people. In verse 19 we see that joy is the fruit of God's peace. The chapter ends with a a little musical instruction to be played with stringed instruments. It was designed to be sung. Music is powerful. Setting truth to music causes the singer to use more than just their mind and mouth to proclaim truth. Music engages the emotions. In fact, as I was sitting there and the girls were singing one day, I was reminded of the first time I was introduced to that version. Now, you might have recognized the old hymn. Uh, It had a different melody and wasn't quite as uplifting as this one. I remember it quite specifically. I was at a camp in Tennessee in the summer of 2008. I remember the lighting. I remember that the air conditioner was set a little too cold. I remember who I was standing beside as we were singing this song, Why. How could I remember all that sitting here? Because the melody and harmony and the message of that song reminded me of the first time I was struck by the message of that song. Music is powerful. And this psalm that started out with, remember all of chapter three is this song, started out with this declaration of who God is, describing him as a theophany, uh, using words like light and power and radiant, and ends with this powerful confession of finding joy in God despite the whole world falling apart powerful message indeed. The life of faith is often rough, but it's overshadowed by God's peace. Are you living in the peace of God? Is it evident in the way that you talk to others that you are living in the peace of God? Is it evident in the way you handle situations Responding with grace rather than distress and anger and whatever else. Are we living the peace of God? The only way to do this is to constantly and purposefully turn our attention to God all day, every day. And when we recognize that we've been distracted a little bit, we turn our gaze back to our God. We are not going to coast our way into a life characterized by God's peace. It doesn't happen. We pursue it by pursuing Him. We pursue peace and joy by pursuing Him. When sorrows come and they will, turn your heart to God. When hard times surround you, look up. When fear strikes your heart, turn to the one who saves. Tradition has it that Habakkuk lived long enough to go into the exile uh, and, and he died in Babylon. Now, again, that's tradition, that's not biblical record, but it's quite possibly true that he did indeed go into the exile and died a slave. Knowing that that was coming, he still found joy in his God. Habakkuk was ready for this calamity because his hope and his peace was already squarely centered on God. Calamity's coming. Are we ready as Habakkuk was ready? Father, we, we don't like the concept that sorrow is coming, that, that stress is coming, that pain and loss are just waiting for us. But we don't have to observe life very long to know that this is always true. Lord, help us to have our Gaze fixed so tightly on your face that when these trials do come, we live a life of hope. We live a life of peace. And beyond that, we live a life of joy. Thank you for the example of Habakkuk who teaches us that no matter how hard things may get, no matter how bad life may become, if we have God, we have everything we need to live a joyful, peaceful life. So Father, train us in your joy now. Help us to be ready for that time that, that we don't see coming. In doing so, may we be not only joyful and content for our own selves, but that we would be an example of godliness to those around us, that we too might have a, a testimony of hope despite trial. We know that this will honor you. We know that, uh, that your word is true, that our hope in you is not misplaced, Thank you for who you are and all that you do for us and through us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as you're able as we sing. Behold our God. We'll just sing one stand.